Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we're so excited to have Sarah Brown Wesling with us. Now, Sarah wears many hats. As a teacher, she sees classrooms wherever she goes. Sometimes it's the kind with desks and whiteboards. Other times it's a kitchen table or an unexpected conversation in a busy hallway. Regardless of the place, the purpose and the questions are constant. What's the lesson here, and how do we need to learn it? One of the most profound experiences of her career was going through the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards Program and achieving certification in 2005. She renewed in 2015 and is currently serving on their board of directors. In 2010, she was National Teacher of the Year. Sarah had the distinct privilege to represent the teachers of this country as their ambassador in 2010. 39 states, 250 engagements, three countries, and 63 delays or canceled airline flights later, she went forward to her classroom more determined than ever to become a better teacher. There isn't a more important role that Sarah has than that of a parent. Her three children continue to teach her all the lessons she needs to learn, whether she wants to or not. Being a mom has made her a better teacher, and being a teacher has made her a better mom. As an advocate, she is honored to find herself in positions to advocate for the profession, for teachers, and most importantly, for the potential of every student. As a learner, in the best way possible, Learning is a little existential for her. There's always another boulder to push up a hill, always another struggle to scream through, always a sense existence comes from the lessons we're willing to learn. That's her. Vulnerable, imperfect, authentic, insatiable. As a speaker, it's become the outward exercise of her inward compilations the bridge between the chaos inside her head and the clarity that others deserve. She's a speaker because she's a writer, because she's a thinker, because she's a teacher. As a questioner, Sarah always tells her students that she'd rather hear an interesting question than a right answer. Perhaps as much as anything, the question is her go-to teacher move. Perhaps it makes sense then that she's always up for facilitating, asking, probing, discovering. As a host, when Sarah first enrolled in college, she did so as a broadcast journalism major. But the writing didn't suit her, and she didn't suit the camera, so she happily found her way into the classroom. Sometimes circles come full, and her media work, Hosting a PBS show for the Teaching Channel, various video spots and PSAs has given her incredible insight to the power of messaging, 
and narrative. So welcome, Sarah Brown Wessling. How are you? I'm doing well. Great. We are so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I am. Awesome. Now, Sarah, can you tell us a bit about your leadership journey and what you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. So this year actually marks my 20th year in the classroom. So it's felt a little bit like a milestone or a big birthday or something like that. So for um, 20 years, I have found myself in a high school English classroom in some capacity. In 2010, I was selected as the National Teacher of the Year, which really, thank you. It's uh, certainly an honor, but more than an honor, it's a job with a really, really steep learning curve. And so uh, I think that that experience really changed my leadership trajectory. Although I think that there were things that were happening prior to that experience that kind of led me to that as well. So I kind of want to talk about both of those. So after that year, or after that recognition, rather, I spent the next year out of the classroom, and I traveled around the country and did some international work as well, being an ambassador for education. And um, that experience was really transformative in a lot of ways, and certainly leadership is one of them. But interestingly enough, at the end of that experience, I felt more responsible than ever Mm -hmm. to become a better teacher. Mm -hmm. So when I finished that experience and I had the opportunity to think about what I wanted to do next, did I want to go into policy? Did I want to go into higher ed or administration? What did I want to do? It really, for me, came back to how can I impact the classroom? And so I worked on creating our own district's first hybrid position, So I was teaching half the day and working on professional development for the district, working with other teachers half the day. It took me about three weeks to realize that was a two-person job (laughs) instead of a one, I would say. Yeah. So um, part of the work became to really advocate for that becoming a full-time position. And then um, I didn't apply for it because I wasn't ready to leave the classroom. And so at the same time, I started to work for the teaching channel. And at the teaching channel, I served as their teacher laureate for nearly five years. And during that time, I think I had another shift in how I saw my work as a teacher leader, that a lot of my work as a teacher leader could be in becoming transparent in the way that I talked about the teaching practice. And so I really worked on those skills for myself as a classroom teacher and then certainly as an extension of leadership. I would also say probably one of the formative experiences that prior to that 2010 that I think readied me for teacher leadership was uh, going through the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards experience. It really taught me how to pay attention and it really taught me how to pay attention to learning. So when I think of myself as a teacher leader, I think of myself as a teacher first. And whether I'm working with adults or policymakers or parents or community members or my first hour that's barely awake, um, you know, I am leading with the intent and the heart of a teacher. My goal is never to present to people. My goal is to teach them. Awesome. Now, did you always think of yourself as a leader? 
Uh, well, my dad would say that I had been trying to be a leader since I was in third grade. Well, I, I suppose in some capacity, yes. For many of the years in my own home district, I probably did a lot of traditional leadership work, right? So I was on all kinds of committees and task forces and things like that. So certainly in that sense, I saw myself as a leader. But I guess I would say you know, the concept of leadership has really evolved for me. But during that time when I was on all of those committees, I think that work was about learning how to pay attention to systems. Mm -hmm. That work was about learning how to pay attention to adults in systems as well as young people. Right. And so in retrospect, it looked more like an education okay. <laughs> in systems than it looks to me like leadership in systems. Mm. And what are you doing now? Now I'm a hybrid teacher still. I teach part-time in the fall. And then I uh, work for the National Teacher of the Year program for a portion of my contract. So I get to mentor state teachers of the year. Um, I've been doing that for, you know, since 2010. So I get to do that work and help to advocate for teacher leadership and work on teacher leadership from that vantage point. So that's still a two-person job. How has that changed? It's been a slow process to kind of get to a place where I can kind of really have this hybrid thing where I'm working with two different organizations, really. Mm -hmm. um, my home school as an organization and then uh, the Chief Council of State School Officers, which houses that program as an organization. A lot of it is slow and it's taken some time. We have a real flexible, very human understanding about workflow um, and how there are times when I can do more work for them and there are times when my students need me more. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's just a, it's a really strong relationship that I'm really indebted to them for. And really it was the teaching channel that I first had this model with. So it was really the teaching channel that kind of helped me to envision a model in which I would teach part-time and then use the experiences of being in a classroom mm -hmm. to help become a leader in this, you know, larger way. Wonderful. As I listen to your story, I'm starting to pick out words that stand out to me that really scream leadership. So you mentioned impact, mm -hmm. which is fundamental in leadership. To me, impact is about influence too. And to me, leadership is about influence. You mentioned transparency, which is mm -hmm. really key. A person who listens, a person who's learning, understanding that you have a deep responsibility, right? Yeah. You advocate this transformation, leadership is all over your story. So how would you describe your leadership style? Uh, probably with a lot of the words that you just pulled out of the early part of this conversation. I would say that I am a person who leads through listening and certainly through teaching. So uh, if you walked into my classroom, it wouldn't take long to recognize that I believe in the importance of learners constructing their own meaning. And when I think about working in leadership capacities, I think about the responsibility of bringing people to understanding. I don't think about my work in terms of being a presenter, which I do a lot, you know, so mm -hmm. I, I do, I work with school districts and I blog and that kind of stuff. But it really, for me, is all in an effort to think about the power of bringing someone to understanding. So I would say that comes for me from 
asking the learner to do the work, it comes in lots of questions. Mm -hmm. So I lead with questions and probably a lot of anecdotes. I think, especially for us in education, we have a pretty secure narrative of what teaching and learning has been. And I think part of our work in terms of change is to rewrite some of that narrative. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot about the power of story and the power of anecdote in order to bring people to understanding. That's great. As you were talking about this, the questions keep coming up because mm -hmm. I strongly believe that asking questions is where we come to understanding. And I think leadership is about asking questions too. To me, teaching is leadership. Whether you understand that or you're at a point where you just started teaching, it's leading, it's influencing these kids. So asking questions is very meaningful. It creates a lot of possibilities. Well, you know, I think questions are really central to all learning because really what a question does is it creates a space. So there is a space between the person who asks the question and the person who receives the question. And in that pause, right, in that space that the question provides, that allows that learner to construct his or her own meaning. And so I think that questions are just incredibly powerful because of the space that they allot us to do our own work. Right on. Okay. So which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? So I'm absolutely a quote person. Um, I'm a high school English teacher, right? So I'm all about words. Um, this year I'm on a cart. And so I have two quotes, mm -hmm. <laughs> two of many quotes that were in my classroom. And I don't know if they are specifically about leadership, but they are certainly mantras for how I live my life. One of them is from Mary Oliver from her famous poem called Wild Geese. Um, she asked the question, um, what will you do with your one wild and precious life? And I think that that question is really important because not only is it about me, but it reminds me whenever I meet someone that they too have one wild and precious life. And it reconnects me to the humanness of this work. So I think that that's really important. Anne Lamott also has a quote that I really cling to. She once wrote, you can either be kind or you can be right. Oh, I love that. And I think, again, when it comes to what leadership has evolved into for me, and I think that that's really part of my story, that as an early career teacher, I thought leadership was being on as many committees as I could be on. And now I understand that leadership is one person at a time. Building those relationships. Right, right? absolutely. Yeah, the idea of being right. Sometimes I think when we are put in leadership positions, we feel a pressure to be right. We feel a pressure to establish a degree of expertise. But in essence, we need to be kind. Mm. We need to assume the best intentions of others. In order to lead. Yeah. That's powerful. I love wild and precious life. That'll stick with me because you're right. It's not just speaking about oneself. You're also looking at others that they have a wild and precious life, that they're right. valuable. And being kind or being right. I love that too, because quite often we have a hard time being wrong. We do. <laughs> do you remember Happy Days? Oh, yeah. Remember Fonzie? Yeah, absolutely. he had a hard time even saying I was wrong. wrong. <laughs> yep. Okay, so Sarah, what type of leader are you inspired by and why? I am inspired by leaders who are wise, 
which maybe sounds just cliche, but I think that the best leaders are the ones who minimize the unintended consequences. I think that there will always be unintended consequences to decisions and policies and choices and all of those kinds of things. But I think the most wise leaders are the ones who have a panoramic sense of implication. They're the ones who are slow enough to take it in. They are the ones who are fast enough to react when necessary. Um, and I think that they practice wisdom. And I think that means paying attention to people. Mm-hmm. I love that you said that they practice wisdom because it is a practice, right? It and is it, a practice. And it takes yeah. time you to just, grow yeah, your you wisdom. You just get it or don't get it. You either work on it all the time or you don't. So I'm assuming that you've gotten a lot of advice. What's the best advice you've ever received? As a leader? Anything you want to share? I have received a lot of advice. Two things really come to mind. One was a good friend of mine who helped me understand that when we say yes to some things, we say no to others. Mm-hmm. It's kind of this law of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that we as leaders, as just human beings, have to really understand that you can't say yes to everything. You can't say no to everything. I mean, in mm-hmm. essence, saying yes to one thing is saying no to something else, and we have to be okay with that. I think another really wonderful mentor of mine, we call ourselves recovering perfectionists. (laughs) I think I fit in that category a little bit. She was really influential in making sure that I was kind to myself, making sure that I didn't harbor guilt about what I didn't accomplish or the student that I didn't quite get to, Mm. you know, that I, I tried and I tried and I couldn't quite help that child. Or if it's in a leadership capacity, I don't know that it's really any different. So I think, yeah, understanding some of the human aspects of what it means to be a leader. It's all connected. I love that when we say yes to some things, we're saying no to others. So it calls us to really value our time and the time Mm -hmm. of the people that we impact. Thank you so much for that. Now, what does it mean to have a good team and how do you build or sustain one? There certainly are a lot of qualities that go into having a good team. I think it goes without saying that, you know, qualities like trust and flexibility, um, assuming good intentions, honesty, or being able to be forthcoming, all of those things, you know, I think are part of a good team. I think having differences becomes really, really crucial in a good team. Mm-hmm. Um, you certainly don't want everyone to be like-minded. <laughs> I don't think all the time. Maybe share a vision, but certainly not be like-minded. And I think building a team certainly takes relationships. It takes that time you know, that you have to invest in not only the people, but the purpose of the work. I think that there has to be a very clear purpose to the work. And I think the purpose has to be authentic. You know, a a team whose job is just to go to meetings every Wednesday. That's not real purpose. You know, that's That's just a meeting. That's that's just a meeting. (laughs) And so for there to be very authentic purpose that's wrapped around the work of a team, I think that that's really crucial. And I also think this is true for all of us that we walk away with an understanding about a team, about being in a classroom, whatever it might be, because of the experience that you had in that team. 
So I could come to a team meeting and be a leader and say, here are our norms, here are the things we agree to, here's the vision, here's the purpose. And I could talk at the people in that room the entire time and entirely undermine everything that was in that purpose, you know? So I think it's really important that leaders act on the very premise that they say they believe in. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, I think your team implodes eventually because you lose the trust. And that's all built on actions. It's not built on words. That's built on actions. Right. It embraces everything you spoke about, trusting, assuming the good in people. You know, that's a practice too, right? Yeah. Assuming the good in people because as human beings, we tend to be judgmental oh my goodness right even right. the people we love so Absolutely. I, have to, I have to always practice that I love how you said it does take time so we need to be patient when we build a team and really listen to the team as yeah. it continues to grow mm-hmm. so thank you so and much you have to sharing. give people permission to leave the team mm. without judgment because sometimes it's just not a good match mm-hmm. you know it's not about the person it's not about the team but it is about having a good match Yeah, there has to be an exit strategy for people. Otherwise, it can get toxic. Here's a quick message to help you start 2018 strong. I'm launching new mastermind groups in January 2018 that will help you grow your influence, whether you're an educator, administrator, or just hungry to grow. Take advantage of our early bird registration and sign up for a group that fits your schedule. Go to masterleadership.org and select masterminds. So can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? So one of the more formative challenges in relationship to both education and leadership happened probably in the first third of my career. High school English teacher, um, our department has um, three books that are in our curriculum and a very organized group of parents raised a lot of concerns about the books and wanted us to take them not only out of the curriculum, but out of circulation. And of course, there's a lot of complexity to all Mm -hmm. of that. But in in all honesty, it kind of took over almost three years of my professional life. It took three years to kind of eventually go through a process. I learned many lessons from that experience. One of the first lessons that has served me very, very well since then, at the first onset of a complaint, there was an administrator who wanted just to make the complaint go away. Mm -hmm. And so we did not follow a procedure. We did not follow a process. Instead, we had some meetings and we tried to make an agreement and be friendly and come to terms with things. And so it was more reactionary. It wasn't reactionary as much as it was trying to keep it out of a public conversation, you know, so how could we kind of deal with this and diminish it so that it doesn't blow up into something else? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, unfortunately, the opposite thing happened because there wasn't a process that we had used. It made it look as though anybody could come and have one of those conversations and get what they wanted. Mm -hmm. And so that really set us on a multi-year journey to try to kind of work through a process. So I learned just how essential it is to not be afraid of these tough conversations, to not be afraid of 
how a public might react, even though, of course, that's our knee-jerk reaction, mm -hmm. and to believe that the process that you have in place, because, of course, we had a curriculum review process, you know, already within our school board handbook and that kind of thing, and to believe processes will work. You might not get the result you want, but the process itself will work. So you have to trust that process. Mm -hmm. So that was the one really big lesson that I learned that I have needed many, many times since then. And I think I learned to really listen. You know, at first I wanted to react and I just wanted to defend these books, which I did defend. But I realized along the way that if I just defended and defended and defended, nobody would hear because I wasn't connecting to their concerns. I was spitting and they were spitting. And so I needed to listen and be able to teach them <laughs> really is what I had to be able to do is figure out how can I teach them what they don't understand about these books. And I can only do that if I truly understand where they're coming from and if I truly respect where they're coming from and if I assume good intentions and if I withhold judgment. And when I started to do that, we started to get somewhere and it ended up fine. You know, we got to keep the books, made a few changes, but we got to keep the books. And those are just two lessons that I feel like I come back to them all it, the it, time. Isn't it amazing how we learn the most when we're challenged the most, um, yeah. we can learn the most. Not everybody does. Um, there've been situations for me where I didn't learn the lesson and I had to relearn it. <laughs> yeah, that happens too, doesn't it? That's another law of the universe. Those lessons keep showing up until you learn them. So you say, wait, I've been here before. <laughs> yeah, learn it. All right. So can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? So when I think about success, immediately my brain goes to faces. So I think about people. Awesome. I think about students who were able to recognize their best selves. I think about students who believed that they had a potential. I think about adults who have somehow found their own pathway because of the one that I walked first. And so I think that when I think about successes, you know, certainly they really aren't my own. They're really the manifestation of not just my work, but of this work in the celebrations of others. I love that, Sarah, how you lift others up. I don't know if I really feel like I do that. To be honest with you, I feel like I am willing to be vulnerable. I feel like I'm willing to struggle. I feel like I'm willing to go first, which doesn't promise a lot, <laughs> except that I'm willing to do those things, you know? But I'm here to say that you are lifting others up as an educator, as a leader. When you thought of the greatest successes, you put a face to that. I've not heard that until now on our podcast. And I'm just very moved by that because to me, it speaks to the kind of leader you are, the kind of teacher you are. You're there. Your heart is there. And we know teaching is about the heart and so mm -hmm. is leading. I'm getting a little emotional here. Hold on yeah, a second. It's okay. And I love how you love people. I love how you value people. So I'm so touched by that. And thank you so much for all yeah. you do. All right. So what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged mm. about their working climate or culture? Well, that's a tough one, isn't it? Um, I think it's pretty pervasive also. The first thing that I would tell that leader is to find your tribe, find your people, which 
may or may not be in the building that you're at. They may or may not be in your hallway. (laughs) They may or may not be in your state. So if you are not connected to other people who are struggling through these same frustrations, then you need to. Thank goodness we have professional organizations. You know, we have podcasts, we have Twitter, we have right, all of this technology. And I think you can't be afraid to understand that you're going to need to maybe create your own network, right? right? So creating that network of people in order to not feel alone. I think that that's really, really important when that climate is tough. And then I think the next thing that's important is I take this from a TED talk about finding the first follower. You know, it's one thing to be a leader, but leaders are nothing without a first follower. (laughs) Otherwise, they're just taking a walk, right? (laughs) Otherwise, they're just taking a walk or people just think they're crazy. Um, And so I think it's really important to think about cultivating kind of first followers. And that may mean, or it should mean, you know, like empowering other people. So when I say find a first follower, I don't mean find the person who's going to drink your Mm Kool-Aid and, you know, take your vision and just make that happen. What I really mean is how do you empower others to follow in the concepts, the ideas that you have as a leader and to really find their own way. And so I think that that's really important as well. Those two, I mean, I think those two things are really, you know, key. And then again, you got to forgive yourself and you have to be patient. Mm -hmm. This work is very, very slow. It is very, very slow work. Because you're dealing with people. Yeah. And you have to remember, I think culture, I mean, I've already spoke to this a little bit, but culture, I think in the end is oftentimes driven by our actions It really is. It's driven by our actions. And that's what people walk away with. That said, I think language is the first action. So if you want there to be a culture where it's a shared space, you change your pronouns. You're not using I and me and my. You're using we and our. And so it's important, I think, to think about the impact that language can have on how we perceive you know, an environment, how we perceive culture, and then to make sure that those actions follow. Language really facilitates connecting. It does. The right words. And so as a new leader, that's an important skill to have. Thank you so much for that. Now, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. Mm -hmm. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning now? Certainly, I think all leaders must be lifelong learners. What that means to me is to put myself in the way of struggle. And so I think being a lifelong learner is not about consumption. It's not about only consuming more books, consuming more conferences, consuming more lines on a resume, things like that. I think being a lifelong learner is constantly reconnecting yourself to what it feels like to not know. Mm. What does it feel like to struggle? Because until you remember what it feels like to be uncomfortable, what it feels like to have somebody ask you to do something you don't know if you can do, you're only going to tell people. You're going to tell them what to do, but you aren't going to teach them and you aren't going to lead them. And you're going to be impatient with them. And you're going to be impatient because you're already there and you don't understand why they're not there. 
And so for me, it's constantly putting myself in the way of struggle. So whether that means intellectually or, you know, academically, sometimes I'll take on those kinds of challenges. You know, this year I shifted from a classroom. I had to take a 20 years of being in a classroom and put it on a desk in a cart. Um, and so I'm, you know, really having to struggle through what it means to create culture when I'm not in charge of my space with my students. And, you know, that's a struggle, but I'm learning a lot. That's probably the most immediate that's very powerful because that's the life of a teacher. That's a life of a leader, mm -hmm. really. Um, it is. To walk into a space where it's not your space, but then you have, you know, not that you have to make an impact, but it's about influence. Right. I love what you said, remembering the struggle. Yeah. Because that's maintaining a learner's heart and having that compassion and empathy for the other person who is struggling when you connect and they're able to trust you. And that's really important. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Now, here's a doozy. Okay. <laughs> if there were something you could change in education in the U.S., what would that be? Oh, yeah, it is a doozy, isn't it? So first and foremost, I am a believer in public education. I believe in the promise of an education, and I believe every single young person in this country deserves that. I believe every young person in this country deserves a teacher who will see them individually and wholly. And so I think if there could be change, you know, it's equal access. It is about equity. It is that every child does have the opportunity to go to a school to be in contact with a teacher who sees the potential they cannot see in themselves. That's it, a tough thing for this country. I mean, we believe that, I think, in a lot of ways, but our actions and our policies don't necessarily allow for that belief to really flourish. So I think that's, for me, number one, is really about equity and access. And I think, secondly, just human assessment <laughs> instead of inhuman assessment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell us what you mean. There's nothing wrong with assessing kids, right? Okay. There's nothing wrong with asking teachers to get better at their craft. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. There's nothing wrong with um, some standardized measurements. But we need to be really cautious about those unintended consequences that we assign to said assessments, evaluations at state levels, at district levels, at school levels, and classroom levels. And I think we need to have a real honest conversation about the underside of our best intentions. Right. So for those listeners who may be policymakers, um, sure. who may be thinking assessment's the way to go, which, you know, mm -hmm. we're not against, how do you suggest that they keep a pulse on how these assessments have these unintended consequences? Mm -hmm. Well, I think you have to be careful about what you attach to those assessments. Mm -hmm. So if we understand that we want students to be assessed in a variety of ways, um, I think that's perfectly reasonable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And I think that policymakers need to understand that these are pieces of a much larger puzzle. I think that also it's really crucial for us to understand that learning is not linear and it's not fixed. So 
you cannot just say to a learner, adult, child, teenager, whomever, here is the skill that I need you to learn. And I need you to learn it by next Tuesday. By tonight, <laughs> by tomorrow. Right. It does not work that way. Right, right. And it doesn't mean that that child or that person isn't going to acquire that skill. But it means that they are in process. It means that they are in progress. Mm -hmm. And if we start to attach policies or decisions to kind of this belief, or at least this practice, it clearly is a practice for us, mm -hmm. that you can put learning into these finite boxes and then stack one box on top of the next and believe that that creates a well-rounded or learned person you're wrong mm -hmm. because what you're doing is you're isolating the most important things. Instead, we have to be able to make sure that we understand, that policymakers understand, parents, community members, whomever, that students may do really well in my class this year because of the teacher that they had two years ago. And there are students that I might have this year who don't do well at all, but that first year of college, they're amazing. And there was a seed of that amazingness in the work that we did. So it's really important for us to understand that learning, it's a slow nurturing process and you don't get there until you get there. You just don't. Right. <laughs> and our job is to keep, you know, making sure that we are paying attention to what kids don't understand mm -hmm. so that we can continue to help them grow, right. but not rank and sort because of it. Right. It all ties into listening and asking the right questions. So thank you so much for that. Yes. Now, Sarah, I'm sure as an English teacher, you've read a lot. What have you read that our listeners should read and why? The first teaching book that I read that made me feel like I had found somebody who somehow knew what was going on in my heart, but I hadn't found the words yet, was Parker Palmer. He wrote a book called The Courage to Teach. And I have kept that as my primary compass for all of these years. So I think that that's really important. I think, though, more recently, certainly Carol Dweck's work on mindset has been transformative for me. And I think even like Daniel Pink's book on Drive, um, that was really important, really helped shape my thinking about what it means to motivate people. Anne Lamott, um, her wonderful book called Bird by Bird, which is kind of this intersection of how do you teach writing and how do you be a good human being and how do you teach? Uh, <laughs> so I think that I certainly have found that the longer I'm in this work, the more important it is for me to seek the wisdom of people outside of our profession mm -hmm. and then apply that to the people who have you know, incredible content knowledge about our profession. You know, I wrote down these books and they all speak to different aspects of who we are. And I think as Westerners, right, we think of our mind, our body, our heart as separate entities. But you've kind of pulled this all together. Courage to teach, which mm -hmm. speaks to our heart. The mindset, which speaks to how yep. we think. Drive, which speaks to passion. And then the technical side, bird by bird. Yeah. So you've nailed it. Thank you so much for that. Absolutely. Um, all right. So, Sarah... You have a lot of responsibilities. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? Um, love that question. So I have good habits, but like all habits or like flossing your teeth, I sometimes fall off the wagon, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, yes. 
So certainly for me, it is really about what you just mentioned, that whole self and being able to be ready to be fully present in whatever capacity I'm teaching in today. So that means making sure my own children, (laughs) you know, I have three three kids. I have a 13 year old, an 11 year old and a seven year old. And so um, in order for me to be centered, I kind of need them to be centered, right? Mm -hmm. So making sure we have a good morning is part of my practice. Exercise is part of my practice. That's one that I usually am pretty good about, although occasionally I fall off the wagon. And then when I get to wherever I'm at, um, oftentimes I use music like for a very quick centering. If I am working with a large group of people, maybe it's a keynote address or maybe it's just a big workshop or something like that with a lot of people. A lot of times it's, you know, the music at the very beginning that I find really centers me. I actually start every class period that I teach with a song. And sometimes they're not my own songs. A lot of times they're student songs. Um, and we analyze that. But it's a, it's just a good centering experience for me. So I think those are pretty crucial. Okay. Ready? So when you say your own songs, you're not a singer songwriter as oh, well, no, no, are no, you? No, 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 no. I wish I was. You know, when people so ask selections. you that question, what do you wish you could do? That's that's at the top. Um, in my own classroom, we use songs that my students like to listen to, and so I have to sometimes get centered around music that's. Maybe not my first choice, but I learned to appreciate it. <laughs> right, right. And you know, I love that because it just connects you yeah, right away. It does. And I learn a lot about them by what they listen to and what they're willing to share and all of that. So music is certainly a centering practice for me. And then I think the other practice, I mean, I'm a writer. So when my mind is busy or it feels like there's too much noise, mm-hmm literal or figurative, I write, I kind of try to just write my way out of it until I find a, you know, a center. Okay. Now, many leaders put in long hours. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give about maintaining balance? For me, balance goes in waves. I have to look at the big picture of balance, right? I used to believe in compartmentalizing. So I used to think that I could compartmentalize my life. You know, this could be my own children compartment, and this could be my teaching compartment, and this could be my Sarah compartment, and like, and this could be my leadership compartment. And as soon as I realized that my shoulders were getting way too heavy with all those compartments, mm-hmm. <laughs> I started to learn a lot from dissolving those boundaries, you know, um, my parenting started to influence my teaching, my teaching started to influence my parenting, my own experiences started to influence my leadership. And so I look at my whole self and try to hope that I have a balance over a period of time, because I can't balance it every day. That's the truth. The truth is, some days, my students at school need me more than my own children. And there are some days that my own children need me more than anybody else. And that's who gets me, you know? So I think it's like this larger sense of balance and the belief that the work goes in waves. Not that I teach from 7.30 to noon and then I am done with that work. But I think that there are certainly practices, some of them that I've already mentioned for me, the centering things, just making sure I'm connected to my own friends, you know, my own family. For the last five years, I've done a solo hiking trip every summer. Really? Yeah, where I just really unplug and I 
just walk, um, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. walk myself to exhaustion for as many days as I can. And that is really life-giving and I think reaffirming. Mm-hmm. Um, and exercise certainly is one of those. I'm a runner, so that certainly is one of those things. For me, balance, it's about quieting the noise and reminding me who I am. And that's how I know if I'm balanced. If I'm losing track of that, then I know it's off somehow. And so you intentionally, when you feel like it's a little off, what do you do? Do you go to writing? Is that your go-to? So it depends. Sometimes it's, I'm going to go for a run. Okay. Sometimes it's, um, I'm going to write. Sometimes it's, I'm going to cook. Um, <laughs> but the, it is a... Um, an intentional shifting. It is an intentional shifting. And what all of those activities have in common is some spiritual connection, mm-hmm. right? There's a bit of a meditative pulse to all of those things that I go to. Mm-hmm. So I wrote down some other words that, to me, describe the kind of leader you are. Um, You're very self-aware, which is powerful in what you do. You're wise, self-expressed, a realist, you're confident, and you're spiritual. Thank you. I like those words. (laughs) You like those words? I like those words. Yeah. Okay, so if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? Most certainly, I would tell myself to be patient. I would tell myself to assume the best intentions of others. I would tell myself that there are things you won't know until you know them. (laughs) And you have to keep struggling until you get there. I guess which is to say there are things that just won't click. There are things that won't make sense. There are questions about the behaviors of other people you won't be able to answer. And you've um, got to be okay with that. You have to be okay with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't touched on? Um, the only thing that kind of came to mind while we were talking, one of my mentors, John Quam, who was my mentor during my year of being the National Teacher of the Year, always asked me two questions after every experience that I had. He said, what did they learn and what did you teach? Mm. And I found those questions to be incredibly powerful in reflection. And since then, I've used them not just as reflective tools, but really as pathways into any leadership or teaching experience that I have. What is it that they need to learn and how is it that I can teach them? So as a leader, let's say you come into a situation where you're doing a professional development, you need to learn your audience quite quickly. You do. What are some things that you do to prepare for that? One of the preparation mechanisms, I think, is just an accumulation of experience. But I do as much homework as I can to learn about what's been going on with these teachers or this district, you know, prior to getting there. But if I kind of go in cold which sometimes has to happen, I almost always start with some kind of a question where I'm getting information from them. I remember I was working with a school district a couple of years ago, and I started like that. And I asked them, what do you want to learn today? And the responses I got were things like, what time is lunch? How long do we have to be here? Who's your favorite professional baseball team? And I learned a lot about where they were at. Mm -hmm in those first few minutes. And that was just really crucial because I understood immediately that I was going to have to back up a little bit, right? Because clearly their experiences with 
workshops and whatnot made them think about when they got to leave. And so, yeah. Which happens a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of quickly changed how we were going to enter into the work. And I think that that becomes just really important. Um, Like, how do you enter into it? Certainly not abstractly at that point. Mm -hmm. So really giving them an opportunity to talk a little bit about their experiences and have them do a little writing about their own experiences and then use that to kind of shift their thinking about what the profession can be. Great. Now, Sarah, if our listeners wanted to connect with you, what would be the best way? A couple of ways. I'm on Twitter at Sarah Wessling. I have a website, sarahbrownwessling.com. I do a column called Ask Sarah there in partnership with Teacher to Teacher, where I take questions from teachers. This is kind of a little advice column and respond to those. Um, And then I certainly have a lot of work at the teaching channel as well. Wonderful. So that's Sarah Brown Wessling, W-E-S-S-L-I-N-G dot com. Yes. Sarah, I want to thank you so much for adding value, not just to me, but to our listeners. Absolutely. It's been a real pleasure. Wonderful conversation. Yes. Thank you. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.